All right, so our core value today, the one here in the middle, the thumbs up, uh, we will be known, core value number nine, we will be known by what we are for, not against. Core value, we will be known by what we are for, not against. A little more for this, it says we will express the love of God and his grace to others instead of being condemning or judgmental. Uh, Here in a few moments, we're going to look at a story in John 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Uh, This is our gift to you. Please take it. We'll we'll get there in just a little bit. We're going to do a little work before we we do. But but if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. Let me say this as we get going. Uh, Whatever you set your heart or your mind on, whatever you think about, whatever you dwell on, whatever you care about or worry about, will often influence the decisions that you make. Whatever you set your mind to, your heart to, will often influence the decisions that you make. Uh, Last week, uh, before Justin's wedding in Wyoming, my family and I spent a few days in Denver, outside of Denver, Colorado, and we got a cabin, and we we made our way to the cabin, and we we turned off a paved road onto a dirt, rocky road. We were like, okay, is is this right? Is this where we're supposed to go? And then we went from there to just a rock road, not so much a dirt road, but a rock road in my minivan. Like, are we going in the right direction? And we see this house up on the hill, and so we make our way up to it, barely make our way up to it. And we get there in the mountains, and this lady meets us, and she's showing us how everything happens. It's a solar-powered house. We're in the middle of nowhere. So we go in, and we get all set up, and the lady says this as she's leaving. I just want to let you know that we have mountain lions. Yeah, so I don't know if you know what a mountain lion is. That's a mountain lion, often known as a puma or a cougar. And she just says it kind of nonchalantly. We have mountain lions. So you might not want to have your kids out at night or early in the morning. Deal, all right? All right, so uh, kids, let's go in the house. And so uh, we go in the house. But what was crazy is this, like, influenced us the whole week like we're like we got to get back before it gets dark because we're gonna have to walk 10 feet from our car to the cabin so we probably shouldn't do that we we need to get back and I love at early morning or at night to sit outside and drink coffee and read I didn't do it once because I'm scared of of this guy and then we left the night we left uh, I had to load our car at night so I'd walk out, and I'm like, check in, and, and, and my wife didn't think it would work very well, but I grabbed our wiffle ball bat. It just made me feel better, okay? I know that this guy probably would have defeated me, but, but literally every time we left the house, we thought about this. Because whatever you think about, whatever matters most will lead to action. Whatever you are for will determine the decisions you make, treat people, and how you live your life. So if you're here today and you confess to follow Jesus, what do you think about? What do you think about when you think about Jesus? What do you think about when you call yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian? What is most important to you? What are you for? Really, the question is, what do you think other people would say you are for? 
Uh, If you're here today and you would say you're not a follower of Jesus, and and maybe you've even been hurt by those who confess to be followers of Jesus, and let me say this, I'm happy that you're here. Thank you for giving us another chance. Uh, but, But if that is you, what do you think Christians are for? Uh, Maybe somewhere you want to just fill out uh, this statement, you want to complete it. Christians are fill in the blank. Christians are fill in the blank. Uh, These two people, last names are Kinnaman and Lyons. Uh, They do a lot of research and they pull a lot of people. And they wrote a book called Unchristian. And they spent three years polling unchurched Americans to find out what they thought about Christianity. And again, you can read that book. It's called Unchristian. And they say this in their book. Millions of young people, they discovered, see us as judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, too political, insensitive, and boring. Your immediate reaction, like mine, this is in their book, it says, is that the characterization is grossly unfair Why don't these folks recognize all the good things we do, like helping prisoners and Africans with AIDS? The answer is that fair or not, hostile press characterizations of us as judgmental, homophobic bigots have stuck. But this is only half the answer. A shocking 50% of respondents said they base their negative views on personal contacts with Christians. As the authors write, many of those outside of Christianity reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. So let me explain. He says two reasons people think what Christians are for, the, these areas. Two, two different reasons. One is bad press. So sometimes the voice that's the loudest is the one that isn't really what we're for. Uh, so there's a, I'm not even, they, they call themselves a church, but maybe you've heard of them, Westboro uh, in, in Kansas. They call themselves a church, followers of Jesus, but they are full of hate. They go and pick it, and and they do really, really hurtful things that are not about God, but they do it in the name of God. And so because of that, people think certain things. I can remember I lived in California in this town called San Luis Obispo, and there was a farmer's market, and every week we went, there was a man holding a sign that said, repent or burn in hell. And let me tell you this, I never saw anyone go up to him and have a nice conversation. Nothing loving ever came from this man's sign. And so I'd walk around and think, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're for. But because of that, a lot of people just assume that that's who we are. It's kind of like if you have a chain link fence and, and you cut the weeds along your chain link fence, but the person on the other side doesn't, it still looks bad, doesn't it? And so the only way to really take care of it is to reach over, which maybe I've done a few times, and uh, weedy their side of the fence. Like, we have to take care of other people's mistakes, right? And so this is saying that's one reason people have that view, but the other reason is just because that's who they've interacted with. They've experienced for themselves people living this way. And so for many of us, we, we need to begin to beat a different drum, We need to to let people know that this isn't what we are for because this is not what God is about or who he is. So the first and foremost, the thing is that God is for people. He doesn't hate them. And so uh, two weeks ago, we looked at this little thing, and I want to go through it just really uh, quickly again. 
Uh, this is a great way to have a conversation with someone about what we believe. Uh, if you could write this down, you could always draw this on a napkin or a scrap piece of paper. Uh, but, but this is something I've been learning. And, and that's number one, that God is for you. That God is for you. So this is a representation of God. A little smiley face and a halo, all right? So John 3.16, most of us know this. Maybe if you haven't even been to church, you've seen this posted somewhere. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the one we hear all the time. But then the next verse says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So he's not against people, but to save the world through him. So God is for people. And if we're going to live out this core value over here, then we should be for people, not against them. Uh, the second thing that, that we see happens is God is with you. So God, in the Old Testament, uh, we see stories. Moses, this, this guy, he encounters God in a burning bush. Uh, Daniel goes into a lion's den, and, and God is with him. But there's still this separation. So we are in the hat with the, the sad face because there's still this separation between us and, and God. And then everything changes because God is one of us. So God sends his son Jesus to enter the scene and becomes one of us and loves us. And so uh, the message translation says this, John 1.14. The message is a, is a paraphrase. It says this, the world became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory of a, with our own eyes, one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So Jesus is one of us. God becomes one of us. And that God is in us, that God puts his DNA in us. When we begin to understand that, that God is for us, with us, one of us, and we begin to follow him, then he is in us. This is a great way to teach people what we believe, that, that we're not against people, that, that we are for people because God is for them. Yes, there's certain things that we believe that, that God wants for people's lives, that God wants for us. However, if those who have yet to follow Jesus think that we're just judgmental, that we're hypocritical, that we hate them, that God hates them, that God already condemns them, that they're probably not going to want anything to do with God. Not at all. And so we want to be a church that in our community, people begin to understand that God is for them. And the way we do that is that we become known by what we are for, not against. And I actually think we do a really good job with this. I really do. Uh, let, let's look at a story, John 8. John 8. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but I, I love if you have it actually in front of you. So if you need to grab a Bible, do that. Uh, if you have it on your phone and want to look at it that way, that's fine too. Just close whatever game you're playing and pull up your U version. All right, John 8. Uh, if you're reading a Bible like this, there's going to be this little thing above it that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have what we're about to look at. Okay, so I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to give you some thoughts to maybe why that, that is. John 8, 1 through 11. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. 
At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Now go, go now, and leave your life of sin. Now, here's uh, one thought of why this isn't in some of the manuscripts. So, the Bible, if you don't know, was written, and it was rewritten, and it was written, and it was written, and it was passed down generation to generation. And the amazing thing, you can do some research on this, is how accurate those manuscripts are. There's not these mistakes that come up when they find these manuscripts. Uh, But some of the manuscripts don't have this. And, And a philosopher in the 300s named Augustine, He thinks that there was a a group of people who were taking this scripture and basically saying, look, adultery is not a big deal. So we can live out our our sexuality however we want because see right here, Jesus says that we're not condemned. And so because of that, people started taking it out. They said, okay, we're just not going to use that anymore because people aren't taking it as truth and they don't understand the meaning. And so it kind of disappeared. And then it's been... It's been found. And so let me just say this, so we, we don't make the mistake of thinking that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, adultery is a big deal. It, it is a, a grievous, serious, dangerous sin. It actually is one of the Ten Commandments, so when God gives this list of rules to give us life, this is one of them. So don't sleep with someone that you're not married to. So, so it does carry this weight when we break this covenant relationship with someone. So it really does matter. And so in the Old Testament a long time ago, if a woman was caught in adultery, she would be stoned. She, she would be put to death. And the men, the stories say, would be buried in animal dung up to their knees and then stoned So they would fall and die in this animal dung. And then if someone loved them, if someone cared for them, they would have to come and pull them out, clean them up, and give them a proper burial. And so when these guys come and they bring this woman, this is what they're saying. Look, this was the law. We've caught her and she deserves death. Now, in our culture, it's probably an extreme the other way. That, that anything we put on our sexuality, any kind of constraint, any kind of rules, anything to keep us what God wants us to do, 
uh, we feel like it, it doesn't liberate us. So in our culture today, we, we think it makes us free to do whatever we want with our, our bodies. And so we have young girls specifically that think this is what they're just supposed to do. And we have young boys that believe this is what they're supposed to do. And so it's swung the other way to where it's almost no big deal. But it is. And we have this woman who is caught in an act. Can we just quickly think about this woman? Can we put ourselves in that situation? When our family travels, we always like to find those cardboard cutouts where you can put your face in and you become someone else. So we always like to take our pictures. Can we do this? Can we... Can we put ourselves in the story and think about the woman who the story says that she's caught in the act? Not that they just heard that she had done it, but that she's caught. That she's drugged out of the house, probably naked, possibly presented to Jesus somewhat beaten. That this is who is standing there. Not, Not that they allowed her to sit down or to hide They stood her in front of the group, in front of all these teachers of the scriptures, the religious people. They bring her in. She's in standing in front of these men, completely vulnerable, full of shame, completely embarrassed, not only because of how she looks, but probably even because of what she's done. She's afraid because she knows that any moment that rocks can come her way. She knows this is what she's deserved. She was caught. There's no avoiding it. That there's no making excuses. She knows the ones that have found her in this position, the religious ones, have already condemned her. And they're bringing her to Jesus. And I wonder if she thinks he too already condemns her. So she's standing there naked and vulnerable, just waiting. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you've made so many mistakes or the decisions you're making even right now that, that you feel that way? That when you present yourself to God, you feel almost naked in a sense, that you're full of shame, that you're vulnerable, and you in your mind have a hard time believing that God is still for you. And you feel like this woman. Or maybe on the other hand, we're kind of like the religious people who are quick to grab rocks. And we think of those people that we bring out, whether it's on social media or with our friends, and we're quick to, to grab a rock. The people that we may know that's committed adultery. Those who are homosexuals, those who don't believe the same politics that we believe. If you're a conservative and you are quick to grab a rock and throw it at someone who is liberal, or if you're liberal and you're quick to throw a rock at someone who's conservative, who are you quick to grab a rock and condemn because they don't live the life you believe that they should be living? I drove uh, last night back from the, the wedding, and there was a huge sign that says God is pro-life, which I totally believe, totally support. But when I see signs like that, I, I wonder how the girl feels that drives by that's had an abortion. 
What, what does the teenager who got stuck in a situation and had no one to help her and feels like that was the only way out and she makes a decision to have an abortion, how does she feel when she walks by or drives by and sees a church that just says they're pro-life? Which again, hear me, I totally am for. I am pro-life. But I wonder what it would be if it said we are pro-life and we are for you if you've had an abortion. What, what would that do for someone if they really believe that, that life isn't over because of that decision? What, what would that look like? But are we quick to throw rocks, right? So for a lot of people, the, the idea of being pro-life means we carry a picket sign that just simply says that we're pro-life. But a lot of you in the room are adopting kids or fostering kids. That's pro-life. That, that's pro-life saying, you know what, I, I understand that you're in a difficult situation, and so I want to come alongside and help you. So we don't want to be people who just carry picket signs and say everything that we're against. But man, we want people to know what we are for. And so the teachers of the law find Jesus, and they bring this woman in because they want to trap him. They've already condemned her. They know what she deserves And I think they already know what Jesus is going to do because he has to, because it's the old law. But the interesting thing is the Roman law where they're at says you can't do a capital punishment. And so they've trapped Jesus. If Jesus says, yes, stone her, then he's going against Roman law. If he says, no, 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 we're we're not going to stone her, then he goes against the old law. And so Jesus is trapped. And so he does what I often do when I don't know what to say is I just ignore people, right? So Jesus, just if you have kids and your kids ask difficult questions, this is the best thing to do sometimes is just to, uh, to ignore them. I, uh, yeah, my daughter specifically, just real quick, th- this, this helps, I think. Uh, my, my daughter specifically is, is reaching that age where she really wants to figure out how babies are made. And that's a question that I ignore or a point to, uh, to Heather. Because there's a no-win position. This is where Jesus is at. He's in a no-win situation. And so he stoops down and begins to draw in the dirt. And while he does it, the people continue to question him. Jesus, come on. You know she's guilty. We caught her. Look, she's standing here naked. There's no questioning what she has done. And so what's he do? He stands up. He stands up and he says this, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stoops down again and he begins to draw in the dirt. Now there's a lot of speculation of what Jesus is doing when he's drawing in the dirt. No one really knows. Is he drawing just a picture? Is he just straight ignoring them? So he's just doodling There's a lot of people that believe he started writing the Ten Commandments. Because these guys would have known the Ten Commandments. They would have known the rules. And so Jesus may have gotten down and said, thou shall not lie. And one guy thinks that he probably wrote down, thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife. Because let's be honest. If these guys caught her in the act, they were watching her. 
And so the thought is, you can't tell me that not one of those men didn't have a thought in their mind. And so he says, all right, if you are without sin, if, if you're good, and I'm going to write all these down, if, if you're good here, then go ahead and throw a stone. And the scriptures say the oldest began to go away first. The thought is maybe they knew the, the law the best. Maybe they were cognizant of their own mistakes, and they knew that they were guilty. Because these men, too, are faced with their own dilemma. They're faced with their own dilemma. Do I give her what she deserves? Because if I give her what she deserves, then I should get what I deserve as well. I've thought about this statement. Look, Look at this statement. It says this. I just... This week, this, this kind of hit me as I, as I was writing. It says, when those who confess to follow Jesus forget who they are without the grace of Jesus, they become people who are slow to give away the grace of Jesus. When those who confess to follow Jesus forget who they are without the grace of Jesus, they become people who are slow to give away the grace of Jesus. As these men stand there, they, they then have to remember who they are. They, they have to remember their own guilt and their own past and their own mistakes. If you're here today and you confess to follow Jesus, have you forgot who you were without Jesus? Have you forgot how good it was when you first, that amazing grace. It's always good to hear people sing that song who have experienced God's grace. The idea of amazing grace seems so different when you actually experience it. Have you forgot that grace you have experienced? So the oldest leave and then the youngest. And the woman stands there still naked with a group of men who have now left and only Jesus is there. And so what happens? It says that this, those who heard begin to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Look, look, woman, and I can get the picture. Picture this. She's now in my mind, she's now laying on the ground. I just, in my mind, the men have gone, she's probably knelt down because she's thinking, okay, I'm no longer in the situation where I'm going to lose my life. And so she's kneeling or laying and her face is turned down. And I get this picture of Jesus lifting her chin and saying, woman, where are they? They're gone. No one here is still here to condemn you. She, she probably still feels guilty. She still feels shame, even though she knows she's not going to live her life. And why? Because she is guilty. She is. There's no denying what's happened. This is probably a pattern of life. They knew, these men probably knew who she was. They knew it'd be easy to catch her. Jesus says he comes to give life more abundantly. This, for this woman, is not experiencing life more abundantly. So this would be a great opportunity for Jesus to lecture her, wouldn't it? To say, this isn't what life is about. This isn't who you were created to be. That he's not for that, that he's against it. Wouldn't it be a great 
time to do that. But what's he do? What's he do to the woman? I get the picture. He lifts her head and says, neither do I. Neither do I. I know you came into this thinking I was going to reject you and condemn you and hate you for your mistakes, but I don't. I don't. And that's hard for us, I think, because we know that she's wrong. She broke the rules. She didn't do what she was supposed to. She would have been considered a bad woman. However, Jesus is for her. He's for her heart and her mind and her soul. And he's extended this undeserved grace, forgiveness, and love. I I like to think of God's grace as this scandalous grace. Uh, Scandalous defined as disgraceful, shameful, or shocking, improper. And then this is the part that I hold on to is wasteful. That is the scandalous grace that God gives this woman. He doesn't hold back. He pours it on her. And then how does it end? He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Look, I don't condemn you. I love you. I'm for you. And because I love you and I'm for you, don't do that anymore. That's not who you were made to be. Go and leave that. Now, for many of us, I think we get that backwards. And some of us personally feel like we need to go, leave our life of sin, and then come back to a God who will no longer condemn us or hate us. We think, I can't go to church because I've got to figure things out on my own. I've made too many mistakes. I'm making too many mistakes. And so we think, I can't go there because I need to be fixed first. Jesus first gives love and grace. And then I get the sense that he urges her to go and be different. I want to be a church that is for people. I want to be a church that believes that grace is possible for everyone. For everyone. Buddy, that, that nobody is too far gone for God's grace. That nobody is too good and not in need of God's grace. I want to be a church that dispenses grace. We want to be a church that says that we are people of the second chance. People that are committed to showing unexpected, excessive, and scandalous amounts of grace. Now, we want people to follow Jesus. We want people to experience life like God wants them to. But we can't just start by telling people what we're against. We have to start by telling people that we are for them. And the reason we do that is because God is for them. So let's join together and do this. Let's be a church that's known in our community where anyone can walk through these doors, that they're not going to think that we're ever against them and that we're for them. Three questions 
no teaching to it, just three questions to think about for yourself. Who in your life have you been against? Who, who for you do you often find yourself picking up a rock quickly to condemn or judge? Uh, who to you seems undeserving of God's grace? Who is it? For me, often it's grace killers. It's Westboro, right? They need God's grace. And how can you be a part of changing the sentence, Christians are fill in the blank? Let's pray. God, thanks for uh, today. Thanks for the challenge you've uh, put on my heart this week as I prepared and thought about um, this core value. Uh, It's hard sometimes to, to be someone who gives grace freely, especially when it's people that we know are guilty, that are not following you and not living up to the life you have for them. Help us, God, to be people who give away grace all the time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.